All right, let's get to our text tonight in the book of Judges, chapter 3. Judges 3, we're going to look at uh, Judges 3, 12 through the end of the chapter. And Ehud, or um, Ehud is how you would say it in Hebrew, and Shamgar. So those are the two judges we're going to look at tonight. Remember, there are 12 in the book of Judges. Uh, most of them were regional, and we're going to kind of go from region to region and take a look at some of those stories and what they... Uh, what they have to teach us, and there is quite a bit to learn from them, certainly. Judges chapter 3, verse 12 through 31. Let's read that, we'll pray, and we'll dig in to this most peculiar passage. Judges 3, verse 12, these are the words of God. Then the sons of Israel again did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. So Yahweh strengthened Iglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and struck Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. That's Jericho, by the way. So the sons of Israel served Iglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the sons of Israel cried to Yahweh, and Yahweh raised up a savior for them, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by his hand to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made himself a sword, which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. Then he brought the tribute near to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And it happened, when he had finished bringing the tribute near, that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the graven images which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, Keep silence. And all who stood by him, him being the king, left him. But Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. The king rose from his seat. Then Ehud sent forth his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the refuse came out. Are you interested yet? This is like a... Rated PG-13 here. Then Ehud went out into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Now he went out and his servants came in and looked and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked. And they said, he is surely relieving himself in the cool room. Verse 25. Then they waited until they were ashamed. But behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead. Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the graven images and escaped to Syria. And it happened when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. Then he said to them, Pursue them, for Yahweh has given your enemies the Moabites into your hands. So they went down after him and captured the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. And they struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, 
all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was quiet for 80 years. Now after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, and he struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Let's pray. Our Father in God, God of all light, God of all grace, we humbly submit ourselves to the authority of your word. We ask and we pray that your Holy Spirit would keep us in your favor by removing the dross of sin and sanctifying the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts. Help us, O Sovereign One, as we need guidance and comfort, direction and assistance. We have cast our sins aside, and now we behold your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, tonight's passage is rather engrossing uh, and, dare I say, sensational. Judges is full of shocking narratives, and this one may be perhaps the most astonishing of them all, although next week Jael is going to shove a tent peg through the, for, uh, through the temple of one of the kings, so there's that. But uh, Ehud and Shamgar were the inspiration behind the subtitle to this series, Ox Goads and Swords. So months ago when I was reading this, I thought, oh, those are two interesting weapons. I will just go with that. That sounds like fun. But before we get into the nitty-gritty, we need to reflect for a second on the Bible itself. So I want to make sure we're dealing with that up front. And I think sometimes that we come to the Bible with dreary eyes and a yawn on our faces. There is always a temptation to come to the Bible with virtually no expectations, right? We just, we assume that, you know, that if we ever get around to reading it that week or that month, <laughs> that it's not really going to do us anything, anything for us anyway, so why, why bother? We trundle along in life as though the authority of the scriptures is really just a footnote or a sidebar. It's something that isn't really integral or necessary for our basic existence. And so we sort of scoot along in life thinking that we'll, just, we'll get by just fine without it, right? And the Bible, however, is what we might call pertinacious, or meaning that it's, it's stubborn and it's insistent about what it actually is. The Bible is the self-attesting revelation of God, and it won't let you think otherwise, okay? So, hate the Bible if you must, but you're not permitted to just yawn at it and act like it's not what it doesn't have any claims on your life. That's the issue. It's the self-attesting revelation of God. It's not going to let you think otherwise. Now, remember what we talked about not too long ago regarding the, the three words of God in, in the scriptures. There are three, when we say word of God, we might mean th one of three different things. And those three things are, one is the creation word. So when God spoke all things into existence, the creation word. We have the um, incarnate word, Jesus taking on flesh, John 1, 1. Um, Anarche in halagos, and, and in the beginning was the word. So Jesus is the word. And then we have the inscripturated word, the Bible that you have. So God the Son, who was the vehicle of the Father's creative word, brought about and created, uh, brought about the created order, and he did it by just simply speaking. Let there be light, there was light, right? God the Son took on flesh. He brought with him the new creation order after his substitutionary victory on the cross and his substitutionary resurrection from the grave. And finally, 
regarding the inscripturated words, scripture is necessary because an authoritative revelation is absolutely necessary. That's Van Til's argument. You have to have a revealed inscripturated word because it's, it's necessary. Otherwise, you're stuck in your own mind and then you become like Immanuel Kant and nothing exists out there, only in what's in here. And then you have existential problems in your life and then you get depressed and things aren't good. So don't go down that trail. Now, the sinner's interpretation of life, apart from Christ, the sinner's interpretation of life is the willful dismissal of God's transcendent authority, and thus, he will always attempt to be autonomous in his pursuits. Okay, so this is Romans 1. Paul says that when, apart, from, apart from Christ, if you are dead in your sins, you have an unregenerate heart, and you are always going to dismiss God's transcendent authority, you will want nothing to do with it, and you will always want to do your own thing. So this sinner needs an integral word, so basically he crafts his own word, our own standards, our own fiat language that we just get to call things what we want. So God's gift of the inscripturated word, the Bible, what you have, that's what we call it, the Holy Bible, that gift that you have is the disruption of man's autonomy. So I was talking with the kids this morning during our uh, Sunday um, overview of the Bible study that we do each week. And we were talking about how men like uh, William Tyndale were burned at the stake and died to give you the word of God in your lap. And so don't take that for granted. Men bled over this. So you, this is God's revelation and he used men like Tyndale, uh, even Erasmus before him, to bring translations, to bring the Bible to the languages of the world. So this is a gift, but that gift that's sitting in your lap, it absolutely disrupts all autonomous efforts. Okay, it, all the efforts of statists, and you think of Trudeau and Canada right now, and all of these tyrants, the Bible disrupts all of that. So don't apologize for it either. It is the only thing that can disrupt and break the chains of the sinner's self-imposed slavery. That is the word of God. So man has sinned. So we've sinned against God and we need an authoritative revelation that's outside of ourselves in order to break up our stony hearts and then bring the truth of God into our, into our hearts and mind, the truth about God's creatively ordered and sustained universe. That's kind of what we're dealing with. Now, I know that seems like a slight rabbit trail to the sword in the belly story, but it's not. And I wanted to say those things on, on purpose because there is an unfortunate penchant inside every man, this desire to dismiss God's authority as revealed in Scripture. If you don't put your life under the authority of Scripture, you will naturally, that is, led by the flesh, want to dismiss God's authority in your life. And we come to passages like this and find it to be rather uncouth. Uh, instead of reading the Bible the way it was meant to be read, we scrub it, we sanitize it, and dare I say, throw a mask on it. And to change metaphors, we sort of shave off the hard parts of the scriptures and say things like, well, it couldn't possibly mean that. Why would God put a story like this in scripture? That seems not cool. And this passage is that type of text, but rest assured, it is inspired scripture and there is a treasure trove that awaits us.
So we have two judges here, Ehud and Shamgar. They both are meant to give us laughter. You're supposed to, if an Israelite would have heard that comment, now Eglon was a very fat man. They're reading it around the campfire and they're laughing. Okay, they're laughing because of what it means. And I'll get to that in a minute. But you're supposed to be la- you're supposed to laugh at this, and you're supposed to be surprised by it too. You're supposed to read this. You're supposed to be shocked, surprised. Perhaps you might even blush a little bit, and that's okay too. You're supposed to read this like you would an ancient Israelite who knows that God writes the best stories, and God laughs. And by the way, He laughs and He mocks the wicked. That's Psalm chapter two, verse four. So let's look at our text and work our way through. Remember from last week, Othniel, he's the Lion of God from the tribe of Judah, and he had delivered Israel from the hand of Kushan Rishathaim, that is Kushan the doubly evil one, that's what that name means. And Othniel's deliverance lasted for an entire generation, 40 years. He delivered uh, Israel from the clutches of this doubly evil man who probably would have been at the time a very powerful world leader. But he, he gave them 40 years of rest. And we also learn that Othniel died, which in the narrative tells us that things are going to fall apart. When you read that, and then the judge died, just brace yourselves. Things are going bad, and they're going bad fast. And that's what happens in verse 12 here. Then the sons of Israel did, uh, again did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. Remember that that's the theme of the book. Autonomous men doing what is right in their own eyes. Whenever there's sin in the world, just know that that's because they're casting off the authority of the creation word, incarnate word, and inscripturated word. They're getting rid of any ounce of authority that exists outside of themselves because they want to do what they want to do. And here it is Yahweh. He's the self-contained absolute God whose eyes, no, it's Yahweh's eyes, are the only ones that are capable of knowing and determining good and evil in an objective transcendent sense. By the way, that's the very thing Adam and Eve were promised by the serpent. Remember, you will be like God. You will know and determine good and evil. You will assess your own, you know, ethical grid. If you want to do what's wrong, you can do that. And that's what the serpent promised them. And by the way, a quick sidebar about sin, because this is important to know. There is no dualism in the world, like a yin and yang, when it comes to sin. It's not like God and sin are equal opposites or God and Satan are equal opposites and both are equally powerful, have the same attributes, and there's just the war of history as they struggle through that. That's not the case. Sin is not the equal opposite of God. It is not an independent principle of origin that's on par with God's attributes, you know, something that exists outside the sovereignty of God. That's not what sin is. Sin is what happens when there's a false relationship to God. Sin is what happens when there's a false relationship to God because God is the ultimate integration point of all things. And when you try to stop that, then you have what's called sin. So if God didn't exist, then sin wouldn't exist. That's why people struggle with the ethics of why do bad things happen in the world? Couldn't God just stop it? Well, the bad things happen, and you call them bad because God exists, and we, we presuppose that. You can't get evil and sin apart from God, the standard, the perfect standard. So if, if God did not exist, sin would not exist, which is to say that sin is simply that which goes against God. So 
Again, sin presupposes the existence of God. If you didn't have God, you couldn't call anything right or wrong. So, Israel is back at it again, sinning by worshiping idols, going back to the Baals and the Asheroths, and living life with a general disregard for the commands of God that he so generously gave them at Mount Sinai. And as a result, Israel is yet again enslaved by another foreign power. This time, it's under the tyranny of Eglon, the king of Moab. And this, in verse 14, is for 18 years. Because even the tyrant cannot escape the authority and sovereignty of God, Eglon was permitted to team up the Moabites. He he decided to get some friends to go against Israel, and he teamed up with the Ammonites and the Amalekites. And they made war against Israel at Jericho, and they took Jericho back, wresting it out of the hands of Israel. That's in verse 13. So Jericho, that's the city of the palm trees referenced here. So Eglon, then, he's the pawn in the hands of the sovereign creator of all things. He's he's a pawn in the hands of the sovereignty of God. So, like, when you think about Trudeau right now, and you think about all the nonsense we've seen for two years, and all of these other... Uh, medical tyrannical stuff going on in the world, just know that we're always ultimately dealing with God, not mere tyrants. Because here God raises up a tyrant to to discipline and, and instruct his children. So the same is true today. Now, a couple of things. Because if you just read this, you might not catch it. But first, Moab and Ammon were descendants of Lot through the line of his incestuous daughters. Do you remember that story? So they are descendants from that whole situation back in Genesis. They represent a second wave of Sodom and Gomorrah when God destroyed them for their perverse living. So Moab and Ammon represent Sodom and Gomorrah. So Eglon, the king, is basically Sodom 2.0. That's how you're supposed to read this text. The Amalekites, they were ancient foes of Israel, and they were the first enemy that Israel had defeated way back in Exodus 17. Do you remember the battle with the Amalekites where Moses' hands had to stay lifted? And when he would lower his hands, they would lose the battle. So he had to have help keeping his hands up. Well, that was their first real battle back in Exodus 17. So here we have the Amalekites. They are the ancient... um, the ancient foe, and here they are again, they're back. So this newly formed squad of oppression, we'll call it, Moab, Ammonites, Amalekites, they come and they take over Jericho. Now, remember Jericho. What was Jericho? Jericho was the first city Israel had captured when they went into the Promised Land. We're reading this thinking, oh yeah, the very first city, we lost it. In other words, everything is going in reverse. They're being taken back out of the land in judgment because of what they have done. So everything's in in reverse. They're losing ground. They're supposed to be taking the land, but they're losing ground because they keep compromising. They lose the progress they had made by God's grace. So the, the principle here, by the way, is what Daniel would later proclaim. God raises up kings, and God pulls kings back down. He raises up kings, he pulls them back down. That's the nature of God's judgment. Now, this is where it gets interesting. In verse 15, we find that the sons of Israel, they cry to Yahweh, and once again, God raises up a Savior, a Deliverer, a Mashiach. He is the next Savior. He's not, by the way, an assassin. People call this, they call um, Ehud a, an assassin. 
No, he's not an assassin. Don't call him an assassin. He's not called an assassin or a liar or a deceiver or a trickster. Nor should he be pejoratively called an opportunist. God raised up Ehud, the son of Gerah. He is a savior. The text calls him a savior, a deliverer. This is a righteous person. So don't call someone or something bad that God calls good. Now note that Ehud is a Benjaminite, and the text says, it makes this point, that he's a left-handed man. Have you ever been perplexed by that? Back in Genesis, Rachel named her son Ben-Onai, or Oni, which means son of my sorrow, but Jacob insisted on changing his name. And have a dispute with your spouse on naming your child? They had a, they, Jacob and Rachel had a dispute. Ben-Onai was his name, but then Jacob said, no, his name will be Benjamin, or meaning son of my right hand. That's Genesis 35, 18. So Ehud is a left-handed, he's the left-handed, probably ambidextrous, by the way, son of Jacob's right hand. So for those of you who love a good pun, this is the pun. The right hand is symbolic in Scripture of rulership, of dominion, and authority. Where is Jesus sitting? The right hand of the Father. That's a position of authority and power. So here's the pun. The left-handed man becomes the right-hand man to Yahweh as a judge and a savior. He's a Benjaminite, son of my right hand, but he's left-handed. Interesting. And by the way, we learn later in the book of Judges that there are several from the tribe of Benjamin who were left-handed, which means probably something was done to help young kids learn how to use their left hand in order to grow older and have an advantage in war. Case in point, Ehud. So, we're told in verse 15, Israel sent tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab, and before heading out, Verse 16 explains that Ehud made a sword which, had two, sword which had two edges. Literally in Hebrew, it's a two-mouthed sword. It's a two-mouthed sword. And a size of 12 to 20 inches in length. So um, probably from your elbow to your fingertip, you know, depending on how, that's, a, that's about a cubic in, in, in the Hebrew culture. So that's the size of the sword. Probably something, something like that. So he strapped the sword... To his leg, it didn't have a crossbar, by the way. It, it was a sword without the crossbar, so it was really more of like a pointy stick in that regard. But it was made out of, would have been made out of some sort of metal. Um, and he straps this sword to his right thigh because concealed carrying is biblical. He's concealing his sword. So Ehud and his entourage, they brought tribute. And what a tribute would have been was probably a whole bunch of food to give to the very large man. So, ironically, right? I mean, that's kind of the humor of this. Like, like he needed more of that. So they gave it to the king. And the text says, now Eglon was a very fat man. So something funny is coming here in the text. You can hear the snickering already because it's sort of a random thing that's put there. He's narrating the story. Oh, yeah, by the way, parentheses here. He's a very fat man. Funny. Now, the text can be confusing, so let me summarize what happens next. Ehud and his men, they drop off the tribute to the king in Jericho, 
and they leave and they stop at Gilgal, which have not been too far away. Gilgal would have been between Jericho, the city and the Jordan River. So if you can kind of visualize the map, uh, remember Israel came from Moab, crossed the Jordan into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. So they're coming in the land. So they stop at Gilgal and that's between Jericho, the city and the Jordan River. There, Ehud, in verse 19, he turns back from the graven images which were at Gilgal. The, the men that accompanied him stayed there. He probably just told them to stay put. And Ehud turns his back to them and goes right back to Jericho, the place that they had just came from. Now, this is conjecture, because I can't prove this in Scripture. But I think that the Spirit moved in Ehud when he saw the idols, because we're told about the idols. He saw them there. Maybe this is where the memorial stones were placed when God told Israel to do that under the leadership of Joshua. And maybe they had erected some sort of competitive idol next to it. And he probably saw that. I think he probably was stirred in his spirit. But he saw the idols and we're told twice about the idols. And in, in Hebrew um, language, it's called a chiasm. And the story, picture it like this, the story goes in a certain direction and then it meets that direction and then comes again and so that these things in the narrative match up so he's told about the idols he kills the king and then they're back to the idols again sort of a, a narrative way of, of of talking so he he the idols are important it's mentioned twice whenever you see something repeated in scripture be thinking about it and um, ehud was resolute against them he probably saw the idols and realized this is a stench God hates this. Now, Ehud goes back. He explains to the king and his guards that he has a secret message for the king. He has a secret message for the king. They have no reason to suspect he's arm, armed because they probably saw nothing on his left leg, which is where everyone carried their weapon. They probably noticed nothing appeared to protrude from his left leg, so so be it. Perhaps they even patted him down TSA style where they really get involved. But they had no reason to think anything ill of this man because what had he just done? They paid tribute. They brought food and gifts. As a good guy. They're, they're good little servants and slaves to these Moabite armies. Now, Eglon is intrigued about the situation and he wants the guards to keep silence. That's in verse 19. He says, keep silence, meaning give us the room. So they leave the room. They go away. Now, to set the stage, this is where it gets really exciting. Hang on to your seats, children. Eiglon would have been upstairs in an upstairs chamber of sorts, which was, it was some sort of second story with windows, perhaps even a lattice or some sort of shade. And that's where the rich people, only the rich people had this sort of second you know, story thing. If they had a hot tub back then, that's where it would have been maybe. But it was very hot, and so the, the breeze would come in, and it was a very cool place to sit and relax. Shade, lots of, uh, you know, just a relaxation-type room. So only the rich had these sorts of things. But there would have been a toilet, which some surmise was the very thing that Eiglon was doing when Ehud had come into the chamber. There's language of dung in here and refuse. So it's possible that that's what was going on. He had a secret message. It was so urgent that he was on the toilet, the big man, okay? There's some Hebrew words that are used here that are only used here. So we're not entirely sure, but it seems like 
based on, you know, decent amount of <laughs> research on various other words, that it seems like that's the case. Now, other people surmise that probably Aglon was assuming that um, Ehud was propositioning him for copulation. He's the king of Sodom. Okay? Any perversion is good perversion in his mind. Uh, one commentator I read, there's a lot of literature out there on this. Like, what was he thinking Ehud was going to come and, and deliver the message? Was it some sort of, you know, copulation effort? We don't entirely know, but it's possible. But either way, Ehud says he has a message or a word from God, Elohim. He doesn't use Yahweh, God's covenant name. He uses Elohim, some sort of God. So Eglon gets up from his throne. That's in verse 20. So, you know, the, they're, they're calling the, the toilet the throne goes way back, okay? So reaching for his right thigh, Ehud grabbed the sword with his left and thrusts it into the Eglon's large belly. That's verse 21. So it just sort of happens, right? So um, the king, when he gets up, being a very large man, that might have been a, an effort. And that's when I, um, Ehud grabs the sword, thrusts it into his large belly. The entire sword, the entire sword, I mean, we're talking probably that amount of sword, goes into his belly, the large man's stomach, and the text says that it closes over the blade. Okay? It's all the way in there. He swallowed his judgment whole. Now, we're also told in verse 22 that the refuse came out. I think if you have an ESV, it says dung. And uh, certainly he means excrement. The blade probably went, by the way, the, the, people love talking about this text because it's so interesting, but the blade probably went in and then slightly downward. And literally the dung and his intestines and all of that refuse came spilling out. This is in your Bible, folks. I told you it's coming. Now, Ehud went and he locked the door from the inside. Look at your bulletin in the back there. Okay, this is how a lock probably would have looked. That's why I put it in here for your visual aid this evening. So the lock would have had pins and Ehud goes and he pulls the door shut and makes sure that's in there. Now, if you notice the man's hand, that's how you would have unlocked the door. You would have to reach in with a fairly large key, a metal it's bent a little bit, has a hook, as you can see, and you have to pull the pins up, and that's how the door would have then been able to, to be unlocked. So just to give you a visual of what we're talking about, he locks the door from the inside, and he escapes. Now, this is what's interesting. How did he escape if the door was locked? Because the guards are outside. He locks the door. What in the world did he do? Well, this is where it gets very interesting. He probably went down the sewer, Okay, so again, not everybody's on the same page with this, but I think it's a very, a very good argument that he went down into the sewer, which underneath that second floor would have had a janitorial closet of sorts, and that would have been cleaned by the servants. So he's upstairs on his throne, and refuse would have been normally, you know, it, flow of gravity, right? It goes down. So he probably somehow escaped into that and went down. A very dirty, very dirty situation. So the guards show up, and the guards are like, okay, the chamber is locked. That means he must be, uh, well, 
it's his, his time, we're sort of embarrassed. They probably smelled the feculence emanating from the door, which is why they concluded that he was relieving himself in the cool room. They probably smelled it. It probably had already gotten really rank in there. Now, embarrassed by the prolonged situation, because you know what they're doing. They're like, what do we do? What, this is weird. This is odd. He doesn't normally do this. Or, you know, whatever the pattern is, they're just standing there at the door like, this is awful. Too much Taco Bell, you know? <laughs> so this is gross. So they're embarrassed by it. And so they, 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 one of them says, okay, we got to go in. So they grab the key, reach through, open the door, slide it, and they go in. And what do they find in verse 25? They found him dead. Now, Ehud probably escaped. He passed, well, he did escape, not probably. He did escape, and he went back to Gilgal, and guess what he saw in verse 26? The idols again. He probably smirked as he walked by. Like, yeah, these idols, they're so powerless. Now, arriving to uh, Syriah, he blew the trumpet for war. That's what you did when you're going to war in verse 27. And it was a distinct sound. Paul says that in Corinthians later about if, it, if the bugle blow is indistinct, who's going to get ready for battle? It has to be a clear battle cry. So he cries for war. The war had already been decisively won, right? The Moabites don't all know about it. The guards know, but not everybody knows. But there's a tad bit of cleanup left for the army. So they cut off access to the area by the Jordan River. So they stationed an army there probably. So no Moabites from the actual region of Moab, Moab would come over. And they struck down, in verse 29, 10,000 Moabites. 10,000. What a great number. No one escaped. Eighty years, two generations of peace resulted from this brave act of faith and obedience. That's what that was. Now, one verse for the next judge, real quick, and you'll see how it connects. But Shamgar, his name means sword. Story of the sword. Now we have a sword in action again. He grabs an ox goad, an ox goad, which is probably six to eight feet long, fairly sizable. I'm about six foot five inches, so taller than me. Very uh, pointy at the end. Um, you would use it to prod your oxen along the field and so on. He grabs the ox goad. He slays 600 Philistines with it. Amazing. The text says in verse 31 that he also saved Israel. And not much else is said about him other than the fact that this man, Shamgar, was probably a Canaanite convert. Wasn't even an Israelite. He probably saw and heard about God's great you know, deliverance from Egypt. And, and instead of dying at the hands of Yahweh, he wanted to convert and become a God-fearing man. So this is surprising. It's funny. This, these connecting stories, I mean, 600 Philistines with an eight-foot pole that's pointy at the end? Talk about savage. I mean, what an incredible feat. And these texts go together for a reason. And I want to briefly summarize before we apply this passage. First, this is where it gets interesting. Eglon, the king of Moab, his name means little calf. But in Hebrew, it's actually a feminine name. And probably the way we're supposed to read that, he's talking about a little effeminate calf. Ha ha. That's funny. Ehud's name means I will give thanks, which strengthens the argument that this scene is actually a scene of sacrifice before the Lord. So he's the sacrificial lamb. Second, Ehud, 
Ehud brought a tribute, a gift, which is something like in Leviticus 2, you would bring an offering to worship the Lord. To bring this tribute near to the king, which is what verse 18 says, they brought it near to him. That's language, again, of Leviticus chapter 4. Uh, you, would bring this, um, you would bring the tribute near. This is like an altar. So they brought tribute and offering to the Lord, an altar. By the way, third, in Hebrew, the word blade also means flame. So Eiglon is a burnt offering before the Lord. And lastly, the entrails that came out of this sacrifice is actually reminiscent of Leviticus 4.11, which describes the sacrificial bull's refuse. When you would make an animal sacrifice, there were certain things you were allowed to put on the burnt offering and certain things you weren't allowed to. So this language of he stabs him, kills him, and the refuse comes out, well, this is all language of sacrifice from Leviticus. It's all language from there. Now, the sodomite king whose sexual deviancy had oppressed Israel for 18 years, who was the size of a giant bull, mind you, but whose power was that of a basically an effeminate little calf, he was offered as a sacrifice in judgment before the Lord. That's what this story means. And the sword was a two-mouthed sword, the word of the living God. It was a message from God. A message of negative sanctions for the sodomite king. So let's, let's consider, what do you even do with a passage like this? So, the immediate point of the passage is very straightforward. Overthrowing the Moabites is as easy and simple as offering up a sacrificial lamb to the Lord. That's how easy it is. It's that simple. And the reason it is easy is because Yahweh has no actual rivals. That's why I insist over and over again with Reformation and Revival... The key to getting out of the status hell we've been living in and continue to live in isn't primarily fighting back, though defensive measures are appropriate, but it's actually crying out to the living God because that's easy for him. It's very easy. It's because God has no actual rivals, right? There's no one that comes close to his power. No one. Now, the narrative is full of humor. It's full of irony and grotesque word pictures, <laughs> But that's part of the fun of it. That's part of the fun. An Israelite reading this would have snicker and whoop with his friends as they see the obviousness of what has taken place. The Moabites, who are they? They are fat, lazy, stupid, sexually deviant, and utterly clueless. Now the Israelite, though, who are they? They are the sons of Israel, and they are smart, they are cunning, they are wise, they are obedient to Yahweh. That's what the lesson's supposed to teach. The Moabites worship idols and give themselves over to them. They are as dumb as the idols that they worship. But Israel, we worship the true and living God. Now, they hadn't been doing that, right? But that's what obedience is supposed to be. You follow God, the obedience gives the grace. It gives the mercy. It gives the blessing. And Eglon's power, or his size, the reason that the text talks about his size, besides the fact that he was that size, but it's a projection of his power. That's what it is. This was a powerful man. Okay, he, had the, he ate the king's diet. He had all the glories of any food he could ever want. And what did it lead him? To being severely, morbidly obese, unable to really move and react. Before he knew it, he had swallowed the sword of judgment. The word of God came to him. He couldn't do anything. And that's because 
His power is no match for the cutting word of God. Now, the larger point of the passage is very easy, and this is repeated throughout the book, but it's God saves his people. God saves his people. I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? This, this narrative is a humorous story about the grace of God delivering God's undeserving people. Um, Ehud's name means I will praise. And that speaks of the reality that God's people in any and every circumstance, listen, any and every circumstance you find yourself in, you must praise God for he alone is worthy. And remember chapter 3 at the beginning, verses 1 through 6, we find that Israel had to learn war. Interesting way of saying it. Why did they have to learn war? Well, they needed to know that there is a stark contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. They were enslaved to the Moabites because they didn't fully realize or didn't believe on the promises of God. They didn't believe it in their actions, certainly. They were a forgetful people, something we talked about last week. So, and here, here's the lesson. The tighter the grip and power an idol is given over one's life, the more strength and punishment is required to loosen it. Does that make sense? The more power you give an idol over your life, the more strength is required to just get you out of it. And sometimes that's painful. It seems painful in the moment. Israel suffered, yet God raises up a Savior who will always praise Him and lead God's people to prayer and repentance. And there's a lot we can consider, but perhaps the greatest question is this. Why does God rescue at all? Why does God rescue? We know He does for His own glory, absolutely, but He also does it because He knows how dangerous and detrimental sin can be. In creation, God has published His thesis, His standard, his law. And that standard is himself. And he has published that in the world, in creation. But there's also an antithesis, an antithesis. Man's covenant rebellion, which is spurred on by the accuser. You see, the Lord knows that this antithesis is entirely problematic and that it only harms his image bearers. It only harms but why does he rescue? Well, because undeserved grace and mercy is the only real solution. It's the only solution in a world that wants sin and idolatry. Undeserved grace and mercy. That's the only way out of it. We, like Israel, love this story because God gets his hands dirty in the mess of sin and rebellion. However, we're not supposed to read a passage like this and then walk away with inflated egos. We're supposed to see the obvious signs. And here are the obvious signs. So here's one of them, the big one. The excrement that was protruding from the king's morbidly obese stomach as he lay there, uh, dead on the floor, that putrid stench of feculence laying there is a picture of the unclean nature of man and his sin apart from Christ. And it is sin, and it is grotesque, and God hates it, but the question remains, what's your attitude about it? What's your attitude about it? We may laugh at the funny story, and we should. You're supposed to read this and just whoop and holler your way home for dinner. I mean, that's absolutely. But we should also stop and realize that apart from grace, we're Eiglon long before we're Ehud, right? We're quick to put ourselves in the hero in the story. Now, don't ask, how am I like this great man? Ask, how am I like this terrible sinner? That's what you should ask. So what's your attitude about sin and idolatry? Do you see it as 
the excrement that it is. Paul says in Philippians, guess what? His righteousness, it's skibalon, it's dung. Even Isaiah says it's like filthy rags, and that Hebrew word is actually a bloody, filthy menstrual rag. That's what our righteousness is like. And we're not even, by the way, talk, uh, we're not even Ehud because Jesus is Ehud. We'll get to that in a second. But what's your attitude about sin and idolatry? Do you hate it? Does your life reflect this hatred? Does it? Does it reflect a hatred for sin and unrighteousness? And if you do hate it, then don't chase the idols because now you're not hating it any longer. Even Psalm 44 verse 3 explains the situation. It says, For by their own sword they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, you favored them. See, God is gracious only by revisiting His thesis, His standard, His perfection, His righteousness. Published in the Gospel, what we have in the good news of Christ, and it's only by that can we, then we can clearly see the reality that is our polluted hearts. You, none of you know how, how, how far astray you've gone unless you hold yourself to the standard of God and His law. That's why Luther called it a mirror. The law of God is a mirror. You're supposed to look at it and see, okay, I don't measure up. That's a blemish. That's not right in my life. My tongue does not reflect the holiness of God. It reflects the anger of man and bitterness. This is, that's what we're supposed to do. Look at at God and His perfection and see how we don't measure up and then look to Christ who does measure up. See, God's message to the nations is simple. Repent or perish. Repent or perish. That was the message that was delivered. See, when your only options in the nation you find yourself in right now, your only options are repentance or disaster, you repent. Ehud had delivered this message perfectly, and this passage can be summed up this way. The surprising, unexpected message delivered to the seed of the serpent from the seed of the woman is one of judgment against sin. In other words, there is more than one way to crush a serpent's head. Sometimes it involves a sword. Next week we'll see the uh, tent peg. But think of, think of it this way. God uses... Think about this story of Eglon. God uses the sins that man boasts about to entangle them and judge them. I mean, it's hilarious. He gets all the food he could ever dream of. He happens to be a six, seven, eight hundred pound man. That's hilarious. The idols have turned them into him. Can idols move? Do idols move? No. Can he move? Barely. He's becoming like them, right? He's gorded himself on idolatry, so much so that he can hardly get off his throne. He can't hardly get off the toilet. And OSHA didn't have the handles requirement back then, so who knows what he used. See, Eglon was an unvirtuous man, a lazy, slothful, gluttonous, effeminate idolatry, idolater, and God brought those things to him with a clear message, repent or perish. And he was far past repentance. There was, there was no repentance for him. Eglon's heart was as full of conceit as his belly was full of tribute. And in this case, Eglon, in his haughtiness, he was sanctioned for death. An eye for an eye, the lex talionis, we call it, had visited him, him that day. See, Ehud was not an assassin. We shouldn't call him that. He was not a murderer. He was a judge. He was a minister of God 
who God had appointed to execute vengeance on the evildoer. That's from Romans chapter 13. So where were the idols? This is part of the funny story too. Where were the idols? Well, they weren't protecting their king, huh? Where were the soldiers who worshipped the idols? (laughs) Not protecting their king. The idols are mocked in this story by showing the absolute absurdity and ineptitude of their worshipers. Idols, you see, are ultimately powerless. They only have power over the beholder. You give them power. When you let money or greed or bitterness take over your heart, you are the one giving that idol power. It has no real power, but you give it that power over you. You've created your own prison. And what Judges tells us is that God defeats idols effortlessly. Effortlessly. God raises up kings. God pulls kings down. And the saying is true. The quickest way to a man's heart is through his belly. And that's what happened that day. For Christ, who has been established as king, idolatry is no match for him. Matthew Henry, the, the, the Puritan commentator, he said this, Iglon signifies a calf, and he fell like a fatted calf by the knife, an acceptable sacrifice to divine, uh, to, um, divine justice. That's the, that's the story. So how do we apply this? Well, church, consider your Messiah. Is not Jesus surprising and unexpected? I mean, think about this. Shamgar, the, he was one man, he took on 600. Ehud was one man, took on the king of Moab, and then later with his army defeated 10,000. And what of Christ? See, the cross of Jesus Christ was feigned defeat. It was an alleged loss, right? Jesus, however, had won the real victory over the devil. That's 1 John 3.8. Look 1 John 3.8 up later. The cross looked like defeat, it looked like the accuser had won, but it was actually the death and defeat of the serpent. It is Christ the snake crusher who overcome, overcame the world which was dead set against him. One versus 600, try one versus all of humanity for all of time. That is Jesus. Jesus and his cross has slayed millions and millions of people, nailing their sins to the cross, baptizing them into his covenant, and raising them to new life. God saves sinners. That is shocking. That's what's shocking about the gospel. Not why does God send some people to hell? Why does God save anyone? The cross was foolishness. It was shame. It was utter contempt. Millions had been dead on a Roman cross as a form of judgment. And here is Jesus on that cross. What a wretched thing to endure. What a humiliating scene for him to be crucified on a cross with no clothes on. There was no little white towel there like he's portrayed. He was naked on the cross, bleeding out, completely exposed, completely and utterly humiliated before the watching audience. That was our Christ. And Paul says that if the religious leaders had knew what they were doing, condemning Christ to death, he said they would not have done it. And why not? Because it was the very means by which Christ would win the victory. Like Ehud, Jesus strikes the definitive blow to Satan, and the church goes on after the serpent's followers as they head for the hills. The the victory is ours, church. We're, We're in the cleanup job now. We just gather the army and go take the land. The victory is ours. It's done. It's over with. 
So we work from victory. We don't work for victory. And Christians today have largely disavowed the sovereignty of God over all things. They've disavowed the victory of Christ in history. They look at the world and say, we're losing, we're losing, we're losing. It's over, it's over, it's over. No, it's not. It's only just getting started. And that's a mistake. It is sin. It's unbelief. It's not trusting in the sufficiency of Christ and his victory. It's trusting in other things like political measures. See, instead, we must take Christ over everything. Everything. And listen, Christ will be your sacrifice no matter what. This is the connection. He will be your death like it or not. If you won't die with him on the cross and have your sins forgiven, then you will die like him in your sins in judgment, just like King Eglon. So Christ's death or your own death, those are your options, but die you must. Everyone dies. The wages of sin is death. And die you will. And it is this gospel sword that we must wield. It is the sword of the word of God wielded by the church that tears the world asunder, laying it bare before the eyes of the Lord. And note that oftentimes the judges would use unconventional weapons. Weapons of war, which are actually weapons of work. Shamgar grabs an eight-foot pole with a point at the end, an ox goad, used for work and dominion and labor, and he goes to war with it. That's not a mistake or an accident. A tent peg will be used. A jawbone of a donkey will be used. Unconventional weapons are used in judges, and why do you think that is? Well, I think we're supposed to consider the centrality of the dominion mandate, the gift of work, the gift of labor, We're not supposed to have standing armies with nuclear codes waiting at any second. It's not God's design for humanity. The priority is always the dominion mandate, the the great commission. And I think think it matters. It absolutely matters that we're busy doing business. We're busy giving our kids Christian education with a Christian worldview so that they too can carry this forth. They need to be equipped to carry the sword of the word of God into a world of darkness So how should Christians respond to this passage as we wrap this up? Very, very easy. How should you respond tonight? What should you be thinking after you leave here? Well, it's this. How do you respond? By living how Christ has commanded us to live, preaching the gospel Christ has commanded us to preach against all opposition. I've been there, humiliated, preaching Christ in the middle of a college campus where we're just getting yelled at and cheered. I get it. Preach the gospel Christ has given us to preach the way he's called us to preach it against all opposition, announcing the salvation Christ offers while warning people of his eternal damnation. And if persecution comes to you and us, then guess what? We will endure it too. And we will cry out to him for deliverance. So we, we rejoice in God's judgments Because this means that the church is now given an opportunity to repent and be restored. And that's what we're missing today. Let's pray. Father, you have been immensely good and gracious to us, and we know that we do not deserve it at all. But we ask and pray that you would move mightily in our nation and in this world. Lord, it just seems like we have constructed another tower of Babel where we want to boast in our autonomy and Father, whatever it takes to humble us, I don't know what that looks like. It may look like something far worse than any of us have ever seen or even conjured up. 
But whatever it is, God, to break the grip of idolatry that grips our nation, Father, would you do it? And we cry out to you for justice, divine justice, Lord. Your son Jesus has been raised, and we know that he is conquering the nations with a sword coming out of his mouth, the word of God, as he rides in victory. Father, we follow him into battle. And we ask your blessing now as we try to seek to be faithful, to be repentant, to be obedient in every area of life. May your spirit grant us that grace in Christ's name. Amen.